Not long ago, one of our staff members, T.J. Waldy, was digging back in the back rooms and the archives and boxes, and he came across a church directory from this congregation from decades ago, all in black and white photos. It was fascinating. Now, to people who were relatively new to our church who saw it, it was still interesting. Their basic reaction was, funny hairdos, things of that nature. But they enjoyed looking at it, or occasionally they'd recognize someone and say, you know, oh, so that's what Rich Holmberger looked like when he was young, that kind of a thing. But for people who had been here a long time, it was absolutely fascinating because they were familiar with those people. So a brief snapshot reminded them of many things, and they enjoyed it even more. The same is true with a passage like Hebrews 11, but particularly our passage today, which begins at verse 32. The idea is this. If you rarely read the Bible, or I've never, never had occasion to read it through, a number of these names may be totally unfamiliar to you, or so vaguely familiar that you can't really remember much of what these people did that are talked about from the Old Testament days. If you have read the Bible some, and you have heard some of today's stories, perhaps growing up in Sunday school or occasional reading of the Bible, you'll do better. If reading through the Bible is habitual with you, these verses will light up far more because you know what he's talking about. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to read the portions of the Bible that you may not naturally be drawn to because they shed light on the portions of the Bible that you are more familiar with. So, we've been working on this for a number of weeks. And yet today, our, our writer's approach, as he writes in Hebrews 11, changes. Before, up till now, what he has done is given a sentence, or in sometimes two or three sentences, a whole paragraph, to a single individual. But now, he takes a different tact. He tosses out a number of names, multiple names, just one after the other. He's saying, as it is, you know their stories. All I need to do is mention your names and they'll come to mind to you. I don't have time to go into details, he's saying, because we'd be here all year if we fleshed it out. And if you have a sense of, of the literary pull of this chapter, it will become clear to you that once he reaches verse 32, he gets into the rhythm. He starts a cadence. He, 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 he's drawing his narrative to a close and it's meant to move you, not only by the content which it does, but also by his style. He is like an African-American preacher. I don't have that gift of those men, but it goes something like this. He talks about Gideon, Barat. I'm talking Samson, Jeff. Yeah, I'm talking David and Samuel and the prophets. Now he goes for the crescendo. You can almost hear the organist's riffs in between what he says. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, yes, Lord. Administer justice, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Quench the power of fire, are you with me now? Escape the edge of the sword, can I get an amen? Powerful in battle, praise Jehovah. Routed, routed foreign armies, praise Jesus, all in the crescendo. That's the idea that he's doing. He's trying to work you up to where he's going. He's a master of words, but he is more than just a master of words. He is trying to rouse the Christian reader's back in that first century, to keep their faith and not give up on following the Son of God when it has become very hard. He lays out examples of people from the past who have persevered in faith in the one true God 
and he takes a period that lasted well over a thousand years in these few verses. He gives some of their names and he gives what the people behind those names accomplished because of faith in their lifetimes. He takes just a sampling of Old Testament characters. Sometimes it's surprising the ones that he chooses. And we today then are going to take only a few samples from the samples that he gives when he wants to strengthen our faith. He first talks about a man named Barak. Now in the past, when Barak lived during the period of the judges, Israel had saw the walls of Jericho crumble to dust. But now, Israel's own fortunes have crumbled. They have abandoned God, and God has abandoned them. And now, instead of conquering Canaanites, a mighty Canaanite king has arisen and has formed a confederacy of various city-state kings, and they are oppressing Israel terribly. This king rules from the city of Hazor, we read in the Old Testament. You remember Jericho and how formidable it was. Jericho was eight acres large. The city of Hazor was 200. The Jews have become this king's subjects, his slaves virtually. They worked where he wanted them to work. What they produced became his. In all probability, their women became his. And he did this to them for 29 years. That is longer than some in this room have even lived. What gave him such power were his chariots. 900 of them he had. And they were not just ordinary chariots. They were iron chariots with sides that come out from the wheels that allowed him, well, we'll speak in a minute, what it allows him to do. Now in Israel, there was a female prophetess. I guess that is an oxymoron. Not an oxymoron. Uh, um, it's redundant. There's a female who is a prophetess. Her name is Deborah, and she sends for Barak. And she says, Barak, God commands you to muster 10,000 men from certain tribes of Israel and go fight this king. And Barak says, I will not go unless you personally Go with me. So she told him what God's plan is. Here's the brilliant plan from God. You're to lead these 10,000 men up on Mount Tabor, which is a mound that overlooks the flat valley of Jezreel. And then here's what he'll do. Yahweh will lure the commander of the Canaanite army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Yahweh will lure this commander to the Kishon River? Are you kidding? That's exactly where the Canaanites want to fight. This river is dry most of the year. It's more of a wadi. It runs the length of the long, narrow Jezreel Plain, empties into the Mediterranean eventually. And the plain along which it runs is where chariots have every advantage in warfare. These chariots run over rows of infantry like a, like a tractor runs over a plowed field. But Barak believes God. Okay, 
on Mount Tabor, they muster. And down from Mount Tabor, they flow. And a terrific rainstorm appears. And in no time at all, water is gushing and racing at a breakneck speed through the Wadi Kishon, now the river Kishon. And it overflows and the entire area becomes muddy and drenched. And the chariots become mired. And as they do, the Jewish foot soldiers cut them down. Infantry overpowers chariots on this day. And we read in Judges 4.16, all the Canaanite troops fell by the sword and not a man was left. The reason they did that is through faith they conquered kingdoms. This reminds me I failed to read the passage. Let me do so now. Hebrews 11.32 And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, and women received back their dead to life. Through faith, the writer writes, and we're thinking of Barak, they conquered kingdoms. Sometime later, it's not the Canaanites, it's the Philistines who are molesting Israel. You remember the Philistines. Even today, to call a group of people Philistines is a byword for people who are Powerful but uncouth, big glutes. They were the people of Goliath. Now, God decided to give strength to a certain Jew who had become enabled to kill many Philistines and deliver God's people. His name, as I say, was Samson. He killed many Philistines on multiple occasions. On one occasion alone, with the jawbone of a donkey, he took his stand in a single field. And he slew a thousand men. Now his strength came from a command that God had given to Samson's parents. They said to him, from the time he is born, he must be raised in a certain way. He must be raised to take a Nazarite vow. This was a provision that God had given in the Old Testament law under Moses of certain people that were set apart to God totally. They were never to drink wine. Not that wine was wrong to drink but that God wanted them to be totally separate in multiple ways as an illustration that they were only his. They were never to eat certain unclean foods and they were to never cut their hair. I think the idea is possibly that is to show that personal grooming and how I look is not the issue, that they are totally dedicated to what God wants them to do. Now, the Philistines are desperate because this man, Samson, is driving them crazy. He has captured 300 foxes. He has tied their tails together and two by two ties torches onto them and sets them into the grain fields of the Philistines and ruins their entire year's crop. He has done things to them that no foe has ever done. They cannot overcome him by physical strength. Whenever they try to do so, he snaps the cords and he overpowers them. So they decide 
Let's play to his weakness. What's the one thing he really likes? Samson is a womanizer. He's an absolute Achilles heel. And so in the tent of the beautiful Philistine Delilah, he lies with his head in her lap, and she gently coaxes from him eventually the secret of his power. If my hair is cut, he says, I will be like any other man. While he sleeps peacefully, she clips his hair. The Philistines who are hiding in the back rush in. His supernatural strength has absolutely melted. He's like any other man. And now they simply take a sword, hold him tight, and gouge at his eyes. For the rest of his life, Samson is in prison. And he's forced to do the work of a donkey. Around and around, he pushes a heavy circular millstone around the granary. Time passes. His drudgery never ceases. His misery is unending. No change day to day. Now the Philistines hold a festival. They want to celebrate the capture of their enemy. They take a long time getting to this because they want to plan it correctly and invite Philistines from real distances. On the great day, they assemble in the temple of their god, Dagon, D-A-G-O-N. There is an enormous crowd, all the great and mighty, all the best and brightest, all the real luminaries of the Philistine world are there. They are on the ground floor. The wealthier ones, the more noble ones, the more privileged ones are up on the upper levels, looking down upon the inner courtyard, all held up by massive pillars. Now, bring him in. And so the guards bring him in. What the Philistines notice is that he is bent. He's chastened. He's humiliated. He's sightless. What they do not notice is that with the passage of time, his hair has begun to grow again. And so they mock him. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people jeering at him, praising Dagon that they brought down this creep of a man. He is standing between two close standing pillars. And we read, then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just this once more. Pillars begin to crack. Something feels wrong. A little dust starts to rise from the stone. And then the entire edifice collapses in a great crumble. The laughing guests die. Their bones are crushed. The rulers die. Those that don't die wish they were dead from the pain. And we read in Judges 16, Thus, Samson killed many more when he died than when he lived. He did this because God wanted to rescue Israel. And as the writer of Hebrews 11 puts it, through faith, their weakness was turned to strength. 
Now we come to four men not named in the passage, but clearly talked about in the passage. For you notice that after he names them in verse 32 and verse 33 to 35a, he describes what the people he's thinking about did. Four men whose names are not mentioned, but we recognize them immediately. They were young men. They were raised in a nation that was supposed to worship God, but the Israelites had turned from God, and so their own nation of Israel was conquered, and they were dragged in chains as teenagers to Babylon, hundreds of miles away. And there they served under multiple emperors. The conquering emperor who leveled Jerusalem and who cast, uh, carted them away, he was an absolute egomaniac. One of the things he's known for is this. He had a dream. He had a dream of an enormous statue. Part of it was in gold. And he was told that that statue represented his kingdom. He liked that a glorious statue represented his kingdom. And so he had erected in the plain a golden statue to represent his kingdom. It was, can you picture it, 90 feet high. And everybody from all around was required to assemble and bow down low before the statue that embodied his glory. Everyone knows that if you're in a dangerous situation in a group of people, your best chance is to stay unnoticed. Just keep your head down. Don't attract attention to yourself. The trumpets are blasted, the instruments play, the sign is given, and thousands of people prostrate themselves on the ground. In the middle, there are three guys standing up. The emperor is irate. He calls upon them. He knows them because they're in his court. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, he says to them, you will bow down or you will go into that blazing furnace. And the men answer him and say, O king, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the God you have set up. The king flows, flows into absolute fits. He orders that the furnace, if possible, be heated seven times hotter. Now, it was so hot that as they're going to the furnace, the soldiers who have bound them and are taking them there are incinerated on their way to the furnace. If these three young Jewish men who have now been given Babylonian names had received special revelation from God of some protection, it would still require great faith to be led to that furnace. But they had no special revelation. They knew God could deliver them. They did not know that God would deliver them. And so their faith was not even in some special word of God sent to them by a prophet. Their faith was in the general principles of the Bible as they knew it. 
that the Lord God is God over all the earth. That he's in control of everyone, including the world's greatest and most powerful. That God will often rescue his people in this life. And then he does not, if he does not, a better life is waiting for them. They are cast into the flames. And as the king peers into the open door of the furnace, he cannot believe his eyes. And he calls them to come out. Because not a single hair on their heads was singed. There was no smell of smoke. They look and appear as if they had been in an air-conditioned luxury hotel room. As I say, we recognize Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, through faith, they quenched the fury of the flames. But there's a fourth man, unnamed, in that same group of people, carried away to Babylon when he was just a young man, We recognize him. He's Daniel. He is spoken of more highly in the Bible than any other man except Jesus Christ. He's given great wisdom from God, and that wisdom allows him to gain favor with the successive emperors, and he reaches high political office. Eventually, the emperor wants to put him as the prime minister above all the other politicians in his entire worldwide kingdom. Now, he's highly respected, but he walks a tightrope every day. He walks up and down the corridors of power of an extremely evil man. This is the headquarters of a world power that is laced through and through with dedication to the occult. He is often in the same room as this most terrifying emperor, who, who is one of the most terrifying emperors in history, I think most people would say. He, he brushes shoulder almost every day with this man who has the force of personality that was spoken of about Adolf Hitler. You could feel the power emanate from this emperor's personality. You never knew if you would say the wrong thing, he would change in an instant, full of rage and order tortures that were unthinkable to you. And so Daniel found himself in a situation where he was thrown, thrown into a basement dungeon infested with lions who no doubt were deliberately kept hungry in order to make this day especially pleasing to those who watched. Daniel went into that dungeon And he looked into eyes staring at him of these animals that had no soul behind them. It would shake the faith, absolutely, of the most mature believer. And yet the next morning, when the emperor came to peer down and see what happened, Daniel said to him, O king, my God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of lions. They have not heard me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Or as the writers of Hebrew 11 would say, through faith, they shut the mouths of lions. And we come to the story of two women that the writer is clearly thinking about. These two are also unnamed. The first is in this story. Many hundreds of years later, 
um, I'm sorry, many hundreds of years later say than, than Samson or Samuel. The prophet Elijah in Israel is hiding from Israel's wicked king. The reason he's hiding is because the king has led the nation into the worship of the god Baal. And God is so angry that his own people are doing this that he has said, until I give you more word, not a drop of rain is going to fall on the nation. So the king is incensed because there's a famine. He's incensed because the famine was caused by Jehovah. And he's doubly incensed because the family, the famine is caused by Jehovah and was announced by the prophet Elijah. So Elijah is told by God to hide for his life. After hiding in a cave in the wilderness for a while, God says, now I want you to leave Israel altogether. I want you to go to a town known as Zarephath, near the coast, and there you will meet a certain widow. Elijah stealthily makes his way across the countryside, doubtless at night, and he comes near the coast to this town, and he comes upon a widow, and she and her son are on the very edge of starvation. She is out collecting a few sticks to use the final little jar of oil and the final little inch of flour that she has to make some cakes for her son and she. And then they are dying. Elijah said to her, would you make me a cake? I can't, sir, because of such and such that I just described. He says, make me a cake anyway. I come from Israel. My God is Yahweh. He's the God of the entire world. And Yahweh says the jar of flour will not be used up and the oil jug will not run dry until this famine is over. In faith, she makes the cakes for him. And in faith, what he pronounces comes true. And he saves their lives from starvation. And so the three live together for several years, apparently, in a humble home, eating their simple meals. Now, later, the boy in this family becomes ill. And eventually, he stops breathing. And the woman says to Elijah, did you come here all the way from your country in order to remind me of my sins and punish me? So Elijah picks up the boy and he carries them to an upstairs room. He lays the boy on the bed. And we read in 1 Kings. Elijah cried to the Lord. O oh Lord. O oh Yahweh, he's saying. My God. Have you brought tragedy upon this widow I am staying with? By causing her son to die. And he stretches himself out on the boy. Not once. Not twice, because nothing's happening, but three times. And he pleads, oh, Yahweh, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And it does. Elijah picks the boy up, carries him down the stairs, hands the boy to his mother. And she says, we read, now I know that the word of Jehovah from your mouth is the truth. There was a second unnamed woman that our writer has in mind in this passage. 
It has to do with a woman in the time of Elisha, who is a successor to the prophet Elijah. We are now some years later. Now, as Elisha travels from city to city in Israel, from time to time, he comes to the Israelite town of Shunem. There's a well-to-do couple there. And one time, the woman there, she invites Elisha to come and eat a meal. And so whenever Elisha comes to the area, he stays with her and her husband. And eventually she says to her husband, why don't we build a room up on the roof so this man can stay whenever he comes? That's the origin of the term that you used to hear about a generation ago when um, someone would house missionaries in their home. They talk about, oh, here's the prophet's chamber. That's the idea. Now, as I say, the woman has a husband. The woman has money. But she has no child. And she is getting old. Elisha calls to her one day. What can I do for you? She says, I have no son. Why the Bible picks this little detail, I don't know, other than to give it poignancy. It says, and the woman was standing in the door. And Elisha calls to her, and he says, this time, next year, you will have a boy. She pleads, please don't mislead me. She dearly wants this son. She does not want to have her heart lifted in order to have it crashed. But a year from then, her son is born. The child grows a little bit. He gets old enough to go out with his father into the field, still just a young lad. One day he's out in the field as they're harvesting or working the ground. My head, my head, he says. Ah, dad says, some headache. Servant, come here, carry him to his mother, get him out of here. He can't take the sunlight, perhaps. The woman sees the seriousness of what's going on with their boy. Elisha is nowhere nearby. She learns where he is. So she asks her husband to saddle her a donkey so she can go see the prophet. Why do you want to go see the prophet? Says the clueless husband. She said, it's all right. It's all right. And she goes. When she reaches him, she tells the prophet, did I not tell you, please don't raise my hopes over this. We read that when Elijah reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. Elisha closes the door. Like Elijah before him, he stretches himself out atop the boy. Hands to hands, eyes to eyes, and he begs God for the boy's life. He feels the body become warm. And a short time later, the boy opens his eyes. Elisha calls for the Shunammite. Take your son. She falls at his feet. She bows low in front of him. And she says, now I know that your God is the one true God and that your word spoken by him is true. In summary then, here's what happens. The widow from Zarephath, the foreign country, is poor. The married woman of Shuman is wealthy. The widow, I say, has no husband. 
the woman from Shunem does. The widow, who has no godly upbringing, had no faith and had to rely totally on Elijah's faith. The wealthy woman combined her own faith with Elijah's faith. Elisha's faith. But the differences don't matter at all. Both of them were reached by God. And as many people have noted, of only two resurrections recorded in the Old Testament, both that are recorded are specifically for the benefit of women. And doubtless, the writer of Hebrews is also thinking about what is true in the New Testament, that three out of four resurrections recorded in the New Testament are specifically said to be for the benefit of women. Or, as the writer of Hebrews 11 would put it, by faith, women received back their dead, raised to life again. A few quick principles from these passages. The first is this. Many times, God rewards the faith of his people in this life and doesn't wait till far off heaven. Every person in this chapter so far saw a great deal of good long before their funeral. Everyone in these verses right here. We, perhaps because we're Christians and we know life can be hard and we know God promises us trial, perhaps our instinct is to say, I know in heaven everything will be okay but I'll stop hoping for anything down here. I will stop working to accomplish anything good down here. It's no use. God gives us all our rewards in heaven. But by faith, God's people in the Old Testament saw a great deal of good in this life, as did people in the New Testament. God accomplished many things for them through their faith in this life, in every conceivable situation. And God looks at us, no matter what we are going through, and asks us to attempt things for him and expect things from him in this life. Because, well, he tells us, cast all your cares upon him because he cares about you. A second principle is this. God rewards the faith of his people even if they live in times of wickedness and national decline. His kingdom has not failed simply because our nation has a feverish sickness of sin and rebellion. The first four names in the writer's list, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, those first four names came during the time of the book of Judges, which was the darkest time in Israel's history other than the exile, when, quote, every man did what was right in his own eyes. God's law is forgotten. True worship is abandoned. Violence is out of control. Sin has mastitized everywhere in the culture. And yet Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah are commended for their faith. And they saw wonders. It is the devil whispering in our ears when we say to ourselves, our country is so far gone and our country has so declined that I won't attempt anything much for God. There's not much use anyway. I'll just keep my head down, muddle through, try to be a good Christian, and see you in heaven. No, no, no. Our passage says that God 
honored the faith in great and glorious ways among people who lived among a very wicked population. Lastly, the final principle, God rewards the faith of people even though their faith has faltered at some time or another. Every one of the people that this writer names had their deep moments of spiritual failure. And God used them and honored their faith despite their faults. As someone wrote, you know, Gideon was frightened. Barak was hesitant. Samson was a flippant man. Jephthah made a rash vow that costs everybody dearly. David gave in to sensuality. Samuel was unwise when at the end of his life he appointed his worthless sons to become judges in Israel. Their faith was perfect, imperfect. Their faith was incomplete. Their faith was seriously lacking in many ways. But in God's amazing wisdom, that did not cause him to cease approving them. And he honored them when they showed faith in him. Our faults here today, mine very much included, are real. Our faults need repentance. But that should not keep us from calling on God and asking him for big and important things. Not, oh Lord, would you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. No, no, no. Lord God, would you help me to live as I should in front of the kids that walk my high school and don't give her a bit about you? God, would you help me be honest as I fill out my tax forms because I'm tight this year and I'm surely tempted not to mention everything that is taxable. God, would you give me grace to show kindness to the neighbor who I can't stand? God, would you help me to keep my tongue from gossiping when I'm around my friends and all they do at the book reading is talk about other people. As we pray these things, though we have failed so much, God says he'll honor our faith. Jesus has bought us access to God by his blood through his cross. If you're not a Christian yet, if you've never believed in Jesus in a, in a totally surrendered way, asking him to be your Lord, your master, your savior, and to cleanse you and to forgive you and thank you for taking your sins on the cross instead of having to pay for them yourselves. If you've never done that and come to terms with God, these stories are a little premature for you. What you need to do is have faith that God will forgive you through the blood of Jesus. But those of us who are Christians, whose faith has been weak, Keep praying and keep believing because God often answers, let me scratch that. God always answers prayers when he does of people who have been far less than faithful. Could I ask you to think about these things for a moment before we close?
Amen. Now may God give you grace to persevere in faith so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. May God's hand be on you.